1: Amen. Yeah, this fall, as you can see, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things that you may notice if you read through the different Gospels is that they're all painting a slightly different portrait of the person of Jesus. Uh, Luke's Gospel, for example, gives you Jesus' genealogy through his mother Mary and then gives you an account of Jesus' birth from his mother Mary's perspective. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, It's reversed. Matthew gives you Jesus' genealogy through his earthly father, Joseph, and then gives you an account of the birth of Jesus through Joseph's eyes and experience. But, mother or father, both of them are really showing you one thing they're showing you what it means, what it's like, to be a follower of Jesus. After all, uh, again, uh, in a way, Joseph and Mary really were the first Christians. They were the first people to have their lives, you know, in broken, rearranged, centered around the life of Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's ask from the passage right here, because that's what Matthew is trying to show us. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, what does it mean just to be a Christian? It means to embrace at least three things we see here right off the bat from the very beginning of Jesus' story in the world, three things we're going to look at this morning first. It means to embrace a mystery, to embrace a difficulty, and finally, the fantasy that's become reality. We'll get to that. But let's begin here, number one, and look at this mystery that's right here. We're called to embrace as Christians. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 22, and uh, Matthew summarizes a story like this. He says, all this took place To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for whatever reason, I frequently hear something, and maybe you do too, maybe you hear, I do, that nowhere in the Bible is there a claim to Jesus' divinity. That means to his being actually God. But here in chapter one, right at the beginning of the first gospel in the New Testament, look at all the ways that Matthew's trying to get across to you a mystery that he came to believe, which is that God became a human. I mean, look at what the angel says. She says, you know, Joseph, what's inside Mary is from the Holy Spirit, right? That's God. Then Matthew goes on to quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah that says, the child will be known as Emmanuel. In case you can't see what Matthew's driving at, he explains it for you. He says, Emmanuel means God with us. Yeah. From the Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, God with us. The point is, from the very beginning, From the initial event horizon of Christianity, its earliest followers claimed a mystery that a child born of a human woman had no biological father, but was in fact God wrapped in skin. And it's not just Matthew who makes this point. It's Peter, Paul, James, John, thousands of others, women who said the same You say, well, of course they would say this. What's the big deal? They were Christians after all, right? I mean, what else were they going to try to say? No, no, no. You're getting it wrong. These people weren't Christians at all. They were Jews. They were Jews. You say, well, what difference does that make? I mean, weren't they all sort of, you know, superstitious, primitive people, prone to believing anything? Hang on. Because first of all, that's called chronological snobbery. And chronological snobbery is one of the great sins of our time. It's basically the thought that because you live today, because you've got a smartphone, it makes you real smart-like. Because you've got an internet connection, you're smarter than anybody who's lived in the past. But let's be honest, are we really, this really willing to say, are you willing to say, you're smarter than Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, Plato, because you live and suck air today? Huh. Matter of fact, you could almost make the case that the fact that these people and others made meaningful contributions to humanity with in many ways far more difficult circumstances than what we face today, make them much smarter than we are today, right? I mean, I've never written one book, let alone one like Matthew's, that people are still reading and talking about 2,000 years later. I say it's pretty sharp. So just because they lived long ago doesn't make them dumb or primitive, you, if you're going to go there, you might as well lump yourself in with that label because in 100, 200, 500 years, people will call you primitive just because you lived before them. That's all. So, again, these men, they, women, they weren't superstitious at all. Matter of fact, they were the furthest thing from it. They were Jews, which meant they believed in one God, not many. They were the exact opposite of superstitious. As a matter of fact, they were actually called atheists by the Roman Empire because of their lack of superstition. They didn't see the grass or the rain or the sky, the trees or the water as gods, but they saw them for what they were, natural elements of the world around them. So they were far from being superstitious, even the surrounding nations said so. But not only that, and you have to catch this, they were the group, these Jews were, most likely to never believe that a human being could become God. Jews were the most likely to root out and stamp out a belief that a man and a God could be one and the same. It would be the height of blasphemy. They even attached the death penalty to saying such a thing. See, the odds of Christianity flourishing in the very epicenter of Judaism were about as likely as a tree growing out of a puddle of bleach. It would have to grow out of something engineered to kill it, and yet it did. Which is why this claim, this claim of divinity in the mouth of Matthew is astonishing. He wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew with a motive, a culture, and a means to wipe it out. And yet, in the very center of a pool of theological and religious bleach, this tree of Christianity grew and flourished and still does today. Because of what these people claim they saw, someone whose life, death, and resurrection were so compelling, he could only be God. You say, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, I never thought about it like that. But what is that, you know, what does that mean for me today, for us today? Well, glad you asked, or I'm asking for you. Because what all this means for you today is the same thing it meant for Joseph in his day when he was confronted with this claim, this mystery. After all, he was the first man in many ways for to have this claim of divinity made and brought into his life. So what does the mystery mean? It's this. The claim that Jesus is God is not just an idea for Joseph's mind, but it's a claim on his life. A claim on his life. Look at what the angel tells him. The angel says, she, that means Mary, will bear a son. Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Oh, can you, can you see what's happening here? See, Joseph, he's the father. He doesn't even get to name his own son. I mean, to get to name your own son was everything in a patriarchal male-dominated culture. And so the angel, God through the angel, by coming at this thing right away, is making it known that who Jesus is, is not up for grabs in Joseph's life. That Jesus is who he is, not who we want him to be. I mean, can you, can you imagine what Joseph's going through, right? I mean, imagine the conversation here. It is, a, Joseph, I'm an angel. Come and talk to you. Joseph's like, cool, Not an angel. Joseph, your fiance is pregnant. Ooh, not cool. <laughs> Don't worry, it's by God. You know, like, better, but weird, all right? And Joseph, one more thing. You're going to raise him and feed him and pay for him, but you're not going to get to name him. I mean, this is clue number one, that when Jesus comes in, he takes over, and the very thing your culture has told you, you have a right to, Jesus removes. Today, though, we don't care as much about naming ourselves, right? Not quite as, excuse me, naming others, We care more about naming ourselves, right? In the same way that a Middle Eastern father would think, I'm his father. Oh, I've got a right to name him. We think, I've got a right to name me. I am this. I am that. I am what I feel like being and nobody can tell me any different. Oh, Jesus. He steps in front of his cultural value, sort of a family naming in his day. He steps in front of our value of cultural autonomy today. And this is, oh, this is so tough for us as Americans. I mean, you're not liking this as I'm talking about it. Because we've been told we've got a right. It's guaranteed, isn't it? To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But let me ask you, what's liberty after all? I mean, what's freedom? I mean, freedom can't just mean living however you want. Otherwise, a fish that flops out of the water onto your lawn would be free. I mean, imagine you've got your kid's goldfish, Goldie you've got in the bowl, and you're carrying Goldie outside, and Goldie flops out onto the lawn. I mean, it's, Goldie's kind of free in a sense, but what's Goldie mostly doing? Goldie's mostly dying. But to confine the fish to water is actually freeing because the narrowness of the water brings out the beauty of the fish's life and any limit God ever places on us is only something that's designed to bring out the best of us in the long run we never could have foreseen on our own see when God's word says lots of stuff but it says to you Christian single person don't be unequally yoked don't marry a non-Christian oh we don't like that it's a restriction it narrows our you know our pond so to speak when God's word says hey you got to give your money away we don't like that it's a restriction. We feel the walls closing in. Or we get skeptical. I get it. Or when God's word says, hey, this, this is the church I want you to be a part of. Or, or these are the people that you have to forgive. Because, again, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others, C.S. Lewis said. Because God's forgiven the inexcusable in you. Hmm. God says, this is the direction I want you to go in. Oh, it really feels good. It's always hard. But if you would gain your life, you got to lose it. See, God doesn't ask, can you see, for Joseph's permission to take his life in a new direction. And he doesn't need yours either. Joseph's got to be thinking, where is this coming from? Everything's going along great. I've got this nice girl, you know, I'm about to be married. God, why couldn't you just leave me alone? Quit picking on me, right? I mean, go interrupt some other guy. All I want is a nice life in Bethlehem. Oh, but God's God's not into nice little lives. He's not. He's drawn Joseph into this great big story against his will. God's grabbing the steering wheel of Joseph's life, taking over. Not going to be a backseat driver. God is nope. And he's asking Joseph to do the very thing he didn't want to do: go with her. Joseph had in his mind to divorce her. It says, "Oh, this was totally destabilizing. Looked like insanity." Would it cost him his money, his reputation? But here's his choice. He could walk away from something, again, that he didn't want to do, which was to be in relationship with someone who would hurt him. Well, I mean, don't you think it hurt Joseph when Mary came to him? I mean, imagine that conversation. Joseph, I'm pregnant, not by you. Well, who was it? It was God. I mean, Mary, don't lie to me. I'm taking anything, you know, but not a lie. And I had to walk away from what God's asking me to do, commanding me to do, or am I gonna believe his word to me and trust the word of those people that are close to me in my life? The angel says, don't be afraid of what's inside that thing you don't understand. It's from the Holy Spirit, Joseph. So what did Joseph do? I'll tell you what he did. And this is why he's heroic and why his name will live forever. Look at verse 24. When he awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not. Till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He obeyed. Though his heart and his mind didn't want to, he wanted to walk away from the inconvenient change God brought into his plans against his will without his choice. Oh, but that's what it means to follow Jesus.
0: Whew. I can't
1: tell you the number of times God's told me and carry crazy stuff. Empty your bank account, give it here, give that thing away. It's always scary. But I don't have the right, we don't have the right to name our money. You see, right? I don't have the right to to name the person uh, I want to marry. I don't have the right to think what I want. I don't have the right to not forgive, not reconcile, not humble myself, not take the lower place. I don't have the right to name me. Why? Because that's what it means to embrace the mystery of divinity. Oh, but look. Didn't Joseph didn't he get something better in the long run than his own choice? He did. I mean, despite his shame, getting his will crossed, what did he get? Oh, didn't he get Jesus? I mean, he got Jesus, right? Didn't he get to be a part of something way bigger than himself? He did. And that's why we're talking about him today. Elizabeth Elliot sums it up like this. She said, "God is God." Because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. He never withholds from his child that which his love and wisdom call good. God's refusals are always merciful, severe mercies at times, but mercies all the same. God never denies us. Our hearts desire except to give us something better. See, the mystery of divinity is this, that Jesus is Lord of all or not at all. That's what this is saying. And that's tough. tough. But let me show you now why it's harder than you think, why it's so hard, because Christianity doesn't just mean to embrace this mystery, it also means to to embrace, to pull in. Number two, a difficulty. A difficulty. And there's some difficulty here. Here's what it's called. It's called the difficulty, here's the word, of depravity. Depravity. Depravity, that being a word theologians have used to describe the human condition apart from God. Depravity means just fallen, sinful, unable to save self. That's what it means. You say, well, Morgan, man, that's kind of tough. I don't know if I'd call the whole human race depraved. That's kind of a hard word even to call myself. I mean, maybe some people are, sure. I mean, Hitler, yep, depraved. You know, the the candidate of the other party I'm not going to vote for, probably depraved. Um, and that you know that, that, that guy that got caught cheating at the Olympics, maybe, maybe to pray. But, but all humanity, including myself, Morgan, I don't know if I'd go that far. All right, let me ask you. Here's a question. What do you think that God thinks that humanity's basic need is? What do you think? What do you think God thinks humanity's basic need is? Is it to be educated, taught, right? Funded, given money, I don't know. Another way of asking this would be, why did God send Jesus? Actually, this passage tells us. Because the angel actually gives us Jesus' core mission statement. And therefore, he tells you what your basic need, what humanity's basic need is today. The angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will teach his people some really good stuff. His ethics are going to blow your mind because your basic need is just to have some more teaching. Oh, no, no. All right. You shall call his name Jesus because he'll bring a good example to the masses. And I man, you really need a better example. Oh, no, no. You shall call his name Jesus because he's going he's to run for president because your basic need is to have the right leader. No, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. meaning a person's basic need from God's point of view isn't just to be better educated, although better education matters. I'm the son of teachers. Listen, Jesus did teach. Fantastic. This means though your basic need isn't to see a good example, although examples do matter. Fathers, mothers, be good examples. This is saying your basic, basic need is to be rescued from yourself. This is saying your biggest problem is you. The biggest problem in your marriage is you, in your parenting is you. My biggest problem is Morgan, right? And this is why you can know this is true. Because you can weaponize anything against God except for this. Because you can weaponize education. You can take education and say, listen, I'm a really smart person and I can see now why I don't need God. Oh, Or you can take Jesus' example and say, hey, I'm a good moral person, right? I mean, why do I need God? I can be good without God. Oh, we just weaponized Jesus' teaching and his example against him. But you can't turn around and point this at God. Because when God says, I haven't primarily sent Jesus to teach you or improve you, I have sent him to save you from yourself, it just gives you a choice. Yes or no. Receive or reject. And it's difficult to hear, like I said. So let me give you three quick reasons why in our culture today this is tough to hear. And these three reasons are three words. The first two are courtesy of that great American late-night theologian, Stephen Colbert. All right. First reason we don't like to believe we need to be rescued or saved is this word. Truthiness. Truthiness. Pause. If, as they say... There's no such thing as truth, right? If all paths lead to God, all faith systems, all religions lead to God, what does that idea produce? It's this thought, that facts really don't matter, truth doesn't really matter, what we feel matters, and if we don't like it, then we reject it, right? If we feel bad, we're out. We're not as much into truth, Colbert noticed, we're into truthiness, And here's how he defines it in his famous character, if you know it. He said on one of his shows, he says, and that brings us to tonight's word, truthiness. Now, I'm sure some of the word police, the wordinistas over there at Webster's are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They are elitist, constantly telling us what is or what isn't true or what did or didn't happen. I mean, who's, uh, who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's what it should say, 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, not heart. Pretty brilliant. What's he saying? He's saying the truthiness is the, the frame of mind that you and I, we can create truth despite facts at hand. God says, the fact is, according to him, your biggest need is to be rescued from yourself. Oh, but you say, oh, what I need is just a little more education. You learn a little more, and so you get stuck. You block his power from touching your life. Second word, another word from Colbert, is wikiality, wikiality. For the lone person out there who doesn't know this, this is obviously springboarding off the name Wikipedia, an online dictionary edited by volunteers, one of the top 20 internet destinations, despite repeated proofs of inaccuracy. (laughs) Colbert combined the words reality... Plus, Wikipedia made up a new word, wikiality, which means reality as determined by majority vote. An example he gave of this is when a majority of astronomers voted Pluto off the planet list, right? I mean, how many of you were just crushed? You're like, my whole childhood is a farce, right? I can't trust anyone. And then they voted it back on. Right. Uh, I mean, or, or, uh, you know, you know, on Wikipedia, any user can log on and they can make a change on any entry. And if enough people agree, it stands and become a fact. And Colbert hilariously wonders about a new wikiality where he said together we can create a reality we can all agree on, which is the reality we just agreed on. or as one prominent writer for the Atlantic magazine put it, and he believes this, he says 51% of anyone believe in anything makes it true today. He says, so two plus two, this guy said two plus two can equal three if enough people say so. And if you say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with enough people just sort of deciding something? I'd ask you, how much wikiality are you comfortable with from your bank when you deposit your paycheck? no, You demand not truthiness, but truth, right? This idea of wikiality, I mean, it's so impacted, hasn't it? You know this, our spiritual lives today. If you've ever seen the movie, the classic Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell, you may remember the dinner scene. Where Pharaoh's character, Ricky Bobby, he decides he wants to pray to the version of Jesus he likes best. And he begins his dinner prayer like this. He says, dear, tiny infant Jesus. And his wife interrupts him and says, no, no, no. Jesus actually grew up. He became a man, right? But Pharaoh interrupts her and says, well, I like my Christmas Jesus best. You pray to who you want to. I'll pray to who I want to. And as, you know, borderline sacrilegious as it sounds, the writer's onto something there. Americans just want the version of spiritual reality they like best, the one that makes them feel good. They like wikiality. Third word is the word mistakers. Mistakers. Back in 1973, a psychiatrist, not a Christian guy, by the name of Carl Menninger, he published a book which blew people's minds at the time. It was his last book he ever wrote called Whatever Became of Sin? Because he noticed that sociology, psychology, were beginning to avoid using terms like sin or wrong or immoral or wrongdoing anymore. And he said this just reduces people to just being sick. And he went on to call for, after a lifetime of saying the opposite, at the end of his life, he said, I'm calling for a revival of the conscious sense of guilt and repentance. In short, he said, I call for a revival of sin. The assumption that there is sin implies both the possibility and an obligation for intervention. We want to help others and ourselves. And hence, sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one's responsible, no one's guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is, in short, nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. And listen, now what he pointed out, it's become a full-blown crisis, right? We're not sinners anymore. We don't like to use that word. And I get it if you've been beat up by that word in the past. But listen, we, we, we call ourselves mistakers, and even our mistakes, have you noticed, we're starting to turn into values. When we consume porn now, we're not full of lust, we're just being sensual, right? Uh, uh, when we're angry or violent, right, we're not just angry people, we're just, uh, we're being honest with our emotions. Even when we apologize, it's hard to hear something like, I'm sorry, I really hurt you, or I did something wrong, we say, I'm sorry they got offended. Which basically means, I'm sorry they weren't tough enough to handle what I said. Right. The latest version of Oxford Junior Dictionary doesn't even include the word. They took the word sin out. And of course, there are mistakes, there are honest mistakes, but a lot of what we call mistakes, the Bible calls sin, and here's why the distinction is important, because if you only make mistakes, it means you only need some education, maybe some help, and that's why the message of Jesus seems so foreign, so unnecessary, and why you keep making that same mistake over and over and over again. You don't need Jesus, you just need you. Only problem is, you keeps failing, right? Sort of like that famous uh, interview. That there's a sociologist, Robert Bella, made a number of years ago. He had an interview with a lady named Sheila, and our Sheila, who's amazing. Sheila said this. She said, "I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Truthiality plus Wikiality, truthiness plus Wikiality. Sorry, equals Mistakers." But Matthew wants pleading with you to read and see. Jesus didn't come for mistakers. He came for sinners. Didn't come to help people learn from their mistakes, but to save them from their sin. And if your life has never been revolutionized by Jesus, if there's never been any kind of breakthrough or change or growth, maybe because it's only seen, because you've only seen yourself. And humanity is well-meaning mistakers, not what the Bible calls you which is sinners in need of saving. You say, well, God, that sounds pretty bleak. No, no, no. Carl Minninger, he called it what it was. He says, that view, the Bible's view, the angel's view is hopeful. Oh, Why is it hopeful? Because as any doctor will tell you, if you misdiagnose what's wrong, you can never prescribe the right cure. And taking the wrong medicine can be deadly. So Minninger, the angel, they agree. Matthew when they're right. This is so hopeful. And let me show you now why. It's even more hopeful than you ever could have dreamed. Because this now opens us wide to the door for the third thing this passage shows us that we must embrace for us to follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus doesn't just mean you acknowledge your own depravity and that you embrace his divinity. It means you get something. This is it. Look at this. Number three is you get the fantasy it's become reality. Look at where Matthew kicks this passage off right away. What does he say first, verse 18? He says, now, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place, he says, in this way. He doesn't say, once upon a time. There was a tiny infant, baby Jesus born. No, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a nice little kid who came. No, he's making a claim here that this isn't a fairy tale, but a fact many years ago, and we know this because he wrote it down, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, great fantasy writer, was walking in Oxford University with his, his friend, uh, an atheist, and they were walking along talking about stories, about ancient stories, and legends and fairy tales, and talking about how different these, all these old legends and fairy tales and myths were from fiction today, and realistic fiction, and some of these old stories they noted would depict you know, a version of time travel. Where someone would step outside of time, where there was dramatic, always dramatic escape from death. They would see communication with these non human but personal beings. They would talk about love that you never lost, that good always triumphs over evil. And then they noted that again, in the factual world, none of those things really ever fully exist. See, everyone loses love, right? Eventually, either by time or death. Evil triumphs over good lots of times. People can't step out of time. They can't communicate with non-human personal beings. In the real world, those things aren't true. And yet, we keep reading about them. We keep watching about them. We keep writing about them, right? People keep writing stories about these make-believe worlds where love isn't lost. Good triumphs over evil at a great cost. About narrow escapes from death. And that's what our modern superhero movies are to a great extent. They're about these gods who triumph over evil, right? Try to make them more believable by placing them in the modern day, but they're still the same. They're fairy tales. And the reason that people love them, they go to see them, is because people feel like, oh, they ought to be true. I know they're not, but they ought to be. There's something true about them. So Tolkien, his atheist friend, Clive, you may know him as C.S. Lewis, were walking along, they were talking about beauty and the beast, about how a great act of unselfishness can release us from the prison of self about sleeping beauty about how we don't want death to be the end about how we want a love that goes on forever and they asked what if there were really were a hero that could break this spell and wake us to life with his touch and then lewis though he got frustrated with the conversation and he said this he said but myths are lies though breathed through silver but myths are lies, though breathe through silver. They sound good, but they're not true. But then Tolkien stopped them and he said, oh, no, no, not all of them are. Not all of them are lies. And Tolkien said, consider this. Consider the story about a young man from the provinces, the, the diamond and the rough. He's a, he's a nobody, but he's found to have a power to resist evil that no one has ever seen. He can't be corrupted. He loves children. He loves the poor. He heals the sick, but then he's betrayed. He's put to death. Oh, but he comes back to life again. And he said, who does that sound like? And Lewis says, oh, it just sounds like one of those old stories. Tolkien stopped him and said, no, it's not. It's not. And what he was saying to his friend was this, that Jesus is not just another legend, another myth that points to all the other myths or legends. But he is the fact that all other myths and legends point to. He's the great fantasy. He's the great thing that all our hearts long for. And Matthew says has become a fact. It's become reality. And that's why Matthew doesn't start it off with once upon a time, but with now. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, just like this. This is a fact. This is reality. It's truth. Oh, he's saying it's not truthiness. It's not wikiality. Oh, Jesus is the great story. The great myth. All cultures, all times have longed for ridden about now come to life his friend is the love that can awaken you from death this is a touch that brings your dead heart back to life his death was the unselfish act that turned back the clock hands of death can free us from the beast within and make us into who we ought to be all along and here here's the best part about this if you believe that jesus really is God with skin on, you embrace that mystery. If you really believe he was killed and resurrected back to life for you and for your sins, not your mistakes, here's the best part. All these stories are yours. They're yours. They will come true in a way you can only imagine. You will step out of time one day into a love that never ends. You'll be a part of a kingdom that will always triumph over evil, free you from the prison of self. That's what you have. That's what's yours. You can communicate with a non-human personal being. That's the claim of Matthew 1. Jesus is the fantasy become reality, become fact. And here's why, last thought, here's why you should want this to be true. If Jesus is just a fairy tale for you, number one, you got a bigger problem on your hands than you realize, because you got to explain how Christianity burst into existence out of nothing in the place that was designed to kill it. It's first people not dying for something they said would happen one day. They weren't just saying, oh, when we get to paradise. No, no. They died claiming they saw something. They saw a fact. A man killed and rise from the dead. They didn't die for a hope. See, they died for a fact. But second if Jesus is just a fairy tale it's even more crushing than you think because all he is is one more false hope. All he is is one more good example you can't ever live up to. But if he really is who Matthew said, God, come to save you from yourself. And like the good doctor said, Meninger, there's hope for you. Hope for you. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means admitting you're a sinner in need of saving. Mm -hmm. It means receiving him as Lord into your life. And it means having a hope greater than you could ever imagine, living on the inside of you and transforming you day by day.